0: Hi, it's Bill Radke. This is Subtext, What Goes Unsaid.
1: If I go to a cocktail party and I share a story about my journey, people don't always respond well. They can get shifty, uncomfortable. It's scary.
0: Scary, that's true. We do sometimes stay quiet out of fear, but sometimes there's an even bigger reason for our silence. Today's show is about being quiet as a way to keep things from changing. That's called a social silence, and it's described by the anthropologist Gillian Tett in her book AnthroVision. As an example, Tett remembers being with some journalist colleagues watching candidate Donald Trump on TV.
2: I was on the news desk at the Financial Times during the autumn of 2016 when they were having the debates. And Donald Trump used the word bigly.
0: Under Obama, millions of people have been moved out of this country. They've been deported. She doesn't want to say that, but that's what's happened. And that's what's happened bigly.
2: And everybody around me laughed. And I laughed too, to be honest. And the people who were laughing were journalists and elites and educated people who were trained to use words correctly. Um, And they defined what correctly was. Bigly? Good grief. We will make America win bigly and grammar loses goodly. Make America bigly again. And the unstated part of all that was that there was an assumption that people who couldn't have command of language, who couldn't use words correctly, um, weren't fit for office. They weren't credible.
0: Now, you might be thinking, Bill, we've already heard this. The media misjudging Trump's mass appeal. But that is not Tet's point here. She's telling you that that laughter is a kind of silence. It's a dodge. It's a cloak. When people start
2: laughing at the idea that Donald Trump said bigly, they're reflecting the unstated assumption, that cultural pattern which binds the elite together, if you like. But doing so in a way that doesn't it doesn't force them to state it openly.
0: And if you don't state an elitist assumption openly, hey, you're just having fun. It's a goof. You're not dealing with its real implications. That's what Gillian Tet calls a social silence.
2: Social silences are key because social silences are really what enables any society to reproduce itself over time and to essentially uphold power structures. And it's often very hard to see what people are not talking about because guess what? We're so familiar with the situation. A fish can't see water. But when you jump out of your fishbowl and look back, then you begin to understand what you take for granted and what you ignore most of the time, either because it's embarrassing or taboo or simply so familiar that we just can't see
0: it. And those parts of our culture that we won't acknowledge are classism, racism, power imbalances. If they're not up for debate we're not going to change them. Here's a different example, another kind of social silence. I'm a parent, I have 3 teenagers, and I complain about all the time they spend on their screens. So what am I not talking about?
2: You need to think about the social silence around cell phones. Even before the pandemic, you know, a rising number of middle-class suburban American kids were facing a lot of constraints in their physical movement in the sense that, you know, parents drive kids around, um, they're over There's concern about stranger danger. And so as a result, one of the few places where teenagers today can actually roam um, without parents watching and collide with the unexpected and test boundaries is in cyberspace with their cell phones. So if you want to understand why teenagers use their cell phones so much, you need to think about the constraints in their real world and recognise that they're both interrelated, even though we don't really talk about those constraints because. It's a social silence.
0: How is this kids and screens issue a kind of social silence in the way that you're getting at in this book?
2: Parents probably wouldn't want to talk to you openly about the way they're physically constraining their teenagers because maybe on one level they recognize that that's not a particularly healthy thing to be doing. It's become a sort of embedded part of modern American life. And yet I think on one level probably many parents recognize that there is a huge drawback in that respect because they're not giving the kind of kids the freedoms they need to explore the world by themselves. You know, many people today know that this is omnipresent. It's a part of 21st century, a system which demands that educational achievement um, is, you know, a key badge for, you know, membership of elite society. And many people, you know, subscribe to those ideas, but actually dislike them. It's hard, though, to admit up front how much they dislike them, even as they participate in them.
0: Oh, man, this is my life. Whereas my teenage friends and I explored in a forest, making up games and poking dead raccoons, my daughter spends her free time in a minivan, going to and from extracurriculars. So her adventures can only happen on a phone. Now, of course, I thought I was supporting her interests... Not upholding a system of elitist achievement, but Ted is saying that's how social silence works. You feel like you're just minding your own business, but you and the group are quietly keeping things the way they are. We'll continue the show after a short break. This is Subtext. This is Subtext, What Goes Unsaid. My next guest is all for disrupting social silences and the status quo. Ashley Cowan D'Ambrosio is involved in a movement known as Mad Pride. She says it's hard to talk about mental illness, but that's what keeps the system from changing. Back when she was 14 years old, Ashley knew something wasn't right.
1: When I came about my experience with mental illness, as I was sharing, it was in high school, I had stopped. Basically, I couldn't get out of bed anymore so i went from being a high performing athlete uh, i was in band i did It was an honor student i did a lot of things but that's because my self worth was completely tied up in it um, and so i i went through this process of having to of watching as different people in my life started to view my value differently and that involved a lot of personal loss and a very difficult for a 14 15 year old person to Go through. The pain there was very, very difficult.
0: And what made it even more difficult is that Ashley thought the only one with the problem was her. So it was up to her to fix everything.
1: I thought, because of this narrative, we get quite a bit that oh, if I work hard enough, I can beat my mental illness. I can mm-hmm. eventually get out of bed. If I pull it's kind of the bootstrap myth, right? Like if I pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'll be able to make it work. And in true <laughs> honor student fashion, I just went to school. I studied so much. I consumed tons of media. I talked to people about it. I did a lot of self-reflection and I started running and I got to the point where I was, I went from being bedridden to now I'm doing half marathons and I'm about to transfer to the University of Washington. Getting to the UW was this big moment, but then just in case, just in case my ego uh, started to believe in the bootstrap myth again, uh, I developed nerve pain and was bedridden once more. Uh, which really forced some soul searching, and that was actually how I found the disability community.
0: I I want to say, Ashley, I shouldn't have to be the parent of a 15 year old girl who's under a lot of stress for me to just for this to be tough to hear, and my heart really goes out goes out to. It. To teenage you, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, my heart goes out to teenage me too. That's part of the reason that I made the decision to to be out here on KUOW, telling the story, is that there's a lot of people uh, in situations like what I was in that don't have the language for it, don't understand what it is, and are taught every moment that it's completely, you know, they're just not trying hard enough, and that can't be further from the truth.
0: Eventually, doctors would tell Ashley that her brain is disordered. What they didn't tell her is that a lot of the suffering that comes with mental illness doesn't come from her brain. It comes from society's reaction to her.
1: I've been diagnosed with a lot of different mental disorders over the years. Things like bipolar 2, ADHD, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, major depression, OCPD. The list goes on. The point is, I've been diagnosed with a lot of things, and there's one trend in all of them, and it's that a medical provider can give or take away any of those at a given moment. And it didn't always adequately reflect my big problem and challenge, which wasn't necessarily what was happening physically with my body, but it was the sanism uh, or ableism that I was experiencing when I interacted with these different systems. It was the fact that I couldn't access the University of Washington from bed. It meant that in certain classrooms, I had to be really thoughtful about whether or not I even told them I needed accommodations. And that was a very scary moment, because when I go to a a teacher that, you know, has this kind of control over, you know, whether or not I'm going to have access, there were moments where they said, you shouldn't be here. You should go to a different school. You should go to a different program.
0: In this movement that you're a part of, that's, that's known as Mad Pride, you're saying it, it's not just a matter of breaking the stigma. Will you talk about what mad pride means and what it means to confront a silence with mad pride?
1: Because the medical system has this history of oppressing mad people and disabled people and BIPOC people. And it's, it's recognizing that the medical system itself is, is built to maintain this power. It's not immune from all of the other things that we see across our systems. And so madness, which is a social identity, is a way for me to claim my mental illness, acknowledging that it doesn't come from, it can't be given or taken away by a medical provider. It comes from my connection to my community and is a reflection of that systemic problem
0: that I face. And when you're using a word like mad, what function does, does saying mad mean here?
1: Yeah, mad is a reclaimed term. So, it's a just like crip is a is a short form of the the term cripple, which is a reclaimed term in certain disabled spaces, not all but certain. There are a lot of different spaces where people are using reclaimed language because it takes back power over words that have historically been used against us and says, "Yeah, I'm mad, so what?" And I think I I personally found a lot of value in that in part because I didn't like how it made me feel when we talked about, you know, this emphasis on my disability or my mental illness is not me. It's like my entire experience pursuing my education, my my experience in going throughout the world is shaped by my mental illness. You can't separate that, both the good and the bad. And so that was part of the reason why I think at least for myself, that that reclaimed language and identity first language, which is using words like disabled people or mentally ill person, as opposed to person with mental illness. We're seeing that there's within certain populations and certain groups, they're starting to adopt identity first language. And some have been for a while.
0: I know you're not the language police, but since we're talking about words that get reclaimed or or don't, um, any thoughts on psycho, crazy? Oh.
1: I, I identify as all of them, which may be a bit, may be a bit uh, extra. Not everybody does. But part of it for me is that, I don't know, part of finding love for yourself is loving all of yourself. If I can accept that when those things are leveled at me, that they're leveled not because I'm so, so important. It's because of a systems issue. It creates a little bit of space, I think, for me to to grieve because every time it happens it's it is very impacting but it makes it a little bit easier when i've already thought in my brain so what
0: yeah that's who i am can you talk about what silence has meant to you on a personal level
1: it's taken me a long time to find appreciation and love for myself because it started with hating myself and hating my disability and hating my depression and feeling like if only I could try harder, if only I didn't have a broken brain, you know, I can't, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get myself out of bed. That was a huge part of it was kind of stirring in my own self-hatred and knowing that other people might feel the same way and not knowing that I didn't feel safe, potentially having that fear confirmed. And so sure enough, as I've gone into different spaces, there are people that they hear me express my story, my experience, and they go, oh my gosh, that's me. And I think the more of us that do it, the less scary it will be for the next generation.
0: That's Ashley Cowan D'Ambrosio talking about Mad Pride. She also runs a group called Crip Riot, bringing disability pride to the masses. She says when you talk about disabilities as an individual problem, you're not talking about systems, education, transportation, hiring, design of our public spaces, and you're letting those systems off the hook. That's today's episode of Subtext, What Goes Unsaid. Subtext is hosted and written by me, Bill Radke, edited and produced by Laurel Morales, sound designed by Hans Twight, Alex Rochester is KUOW's digital community outreach coordinator, Melissa Takai designed our logo and artwork, Michaela Giannotti is KUOW's director of marketing, Brendan Sweeney is director of new content, Zeki Hamid directs community engagement for the station, Jennifer Stracken is KUOW's chief content officer. So what else goes unsaid? I'd like to hear your subtext stories and ideas for episodes. So contact me at bradke at kuow.org. My email address is bradke at kuow.org. And you can text us 206-926-9955. 206-926-9955. Coming up on the next episode of Subtext... You can talk a whole lot about the facts and still leave the truth unsaid. He says, I've been working on it with my therapist for over a year. (laughs) And I said, your therapist owes me some money. (laughs) And his whole life changed. It was really interesting. His whole life changed. One of Seattle's great storytellers and teachers, Sean Wong, on that one thing we all need to unearth. That's next time on Subtext, What Goes Unsaid.